You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. But today uh, we are going to be in Matthew 1, as you heard, and this Advent season uh, we're tracking along with some of the, the themes that are associated with the, the Advent wreath. Uh, Advent wreath isn't a, a biblical idea per se, as much as it was something in the late 1800s, actually a Lutheran uh, pastor began to do to, to just kind of help teach uh, his church uh, the, the significant themes uh, of, of Advent uh, that we celebrate uh, at Christmas time, and, and particularly that are revealed in the incarnation in Christ. Uh, birth uh, and the significance of it. And last week we looked at hope and uh, this week we're looking at faith and the the different candles of the Advent wreath represent uh, these different themes of of hope and faith and joy um, and uh, and peace uh, and and then Christ uh, celebrating Christ on Christmas, which we'll do on Christmas Eve as we gather. Uh, but in lighting these candles, they it's interesting how they uh, they they point us to some significant aspects of the of the story of Christ's birth. And as we think about faith, which is symbolized here by the second candle, which is also known as the Bethlehem candle, we're reminded of the faith of Mary and Joseph, who humbly received uh, God's will and God's plan to bring about the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus, through this unexpected uh, virgin mother, uh, Mary, and Joseph, who was of uh, the tribe of Benjamin of, and from the town of Bethlehem in the line of David, according to the promise of God. We, we see their humble faith to trust God and to, to set out at the, uh, at the appeal of Caesar Augustus to, to go and, and have uh, their, their names taken in the, in the census in the town of Bethlehem, all to bring about the fulfillment of God's plan for the ruler, for the Messiah, to be born in the little town of Bethlehem. And, and so as we think about faith, I, I, I can't help but step back a little bit. And as we come to this topic uh, and, and acknowledge that when we talk about faith, it's somewhat of a can be somewhat of a confusing idea, uh, especially in our day, both within the church and outside the church. And uh, one of my favorite authors, um, who since uh, passed, J.I. Packer, a British theologian, um, who uh, talked about faith, and he said that faith uh, has fallen on hard times. He he said it this way: that there's been a fuzzification. I think that's a uh, theological word, a fuzzification of faith. And what he meant by that is when people talk about faith today, there's a lot of different things that we mean by it. And some of them are legitimate. Some of them can be confusing. When we talk about faith, sometimes we, uh, we just, we're just kind of talking about you know, hoping in some outcome in the future. Just a, a general idea of faith, having faith uh, in our favorite sports team or faith that something's going to play out at work or something along those lines. Uh, faith that uh, Michigan will beat Ohio State again and make it to the national championship. Most likely, you know, like those those things we we have faith in. And three years ago, that may have been shaky faith. You know, this year we're feeling good about that faith, right? But then then there are other thing, other ways we talk about faith that make it more confusing. And, and and I do this as well. But we talk about all types of different religious systems. We refer to these different faiths, right? We're referring to 
different faiths. And so people are like, well, I guess there's that faith and this faith and uh, which faith is true. What do we mean by faith? And, and then when we think about faith, we, we see it as a central tenet uh, to the gospel of responding to the gospel, that we respond to the gospel by faith. Uh, and so we have all these different uses of faith, and sometimes there's, there's kind of this subjectivizing of faith in our culture, and then a little bit of confusion about what exactly we mean by faith. Is faith just kind of a blind leap into the dark, or is faith grounded in something and, and, and some type of historical truth, or, or is faith just kind of my tradition, or what do we mean by faith? And, and as we think about the, uh, the message of Advent and the message of Christmas, it takes us back to the basics. And that's what I want us to do today. I want us to think about what we mean by faith. And I want us to think about two, two, part, two ways in which we discuss faith. The first is in knowing the faith, which is in reference to the content of what we believe, which is revealed in God's word. So when we refer to our faith or the faith, we're referring to the content of our faith that's revealed in God's word. But also, uh, vitally important, there's the aspect of living by faith, which is a, a personal trust and submission in Jesus. And you'll see these definitions uh, on the screen that, that help us to understand that we, we mean by faith that we want to know the faith and we want to live by the faith. That uh, in Jude chapter 3 verse 4 in reference to, to knowing the faith, it says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. That was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people who have crept in unnoticed long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude talks about contending for the faith, which is what has been passed on to us, delivered to us and to the saints. We have this common faith. That we are to believe that's grounded and revealed in the scriptures and that's centered on the identity of Jesus as our savior and as our master. Jab Packer in that uh, article and talking about faith, he said, what did the apostolic writers have in mind when they spoke of the faith? He says nothing less than what they took to be the distinctive essence of Christianity. Now, uh, Packer's a little wordy, but track along with me. I, I think it's up here on the screen. He says, what did they mean? A belief and behavior commitment to Jesus Christ, the divine human Lord who came to earth, died for our sins, rose from the dead, returned to heaven, reigns now, or, or, reigns now over the cosmos as his, father's, uh, as his father's nominated vice regent and will appear to judge everyone and to take his own people into glory where they will be with him in unimaginable joy forever. I love that statement that it's a belief and behavior commitment to Jesus. And then we have this content of our faith that what we believe about Jesus is what's grounded in the scriptures, that he is the divine human Lord, that he is the one who came to earth in the incarnation, died for our sins, rose from the dead, returned to heaven, reigns now over all and will one day come again. This, this is the foundations of our faith. And at the, at the, when we look at the incarnation at Christmas time, we're taken to these very foundations of what God has revealed to us and knowing the faith. But also, when we think about what, what the incarnation means and, and the response to this faith that's been delivered to us and revealed in God's word, uh, the way I, I want to express it is that it's a, a living by faith. It's a personal trust and submission to Jesus. 
And all throughout the scriptures, we see this foundational truth. In, in John 3.16, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. By faith, we have new life. And Ephesians 2, chapter 8 and verse 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace through faith. It's not just kind of a, an acknowledgement of a certain uh, list of points. It's not just a, uh, you know, a mental assent to, to believing uh, these truths. There's this personal commitment that's associated by faith that we're trusting and submitting to Jesus. I actually like the word allegiance when I think about what faith means. That faith isn't, isn't just merely a personal trust and submission, but a helpful way to think about it is giving our allegiance to Jesus. It's this wholehearted submission, joyful submission to him. And in fact, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, uh, I like the way it expresses the essence of faith, not as just the beginning of the Christian life by which we, we initially believe and trust in Jesus, but faith as the ongoing reality of the Christian life, because it says Paul in, in kind of his own testimony, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. When we trusted in Jesus, we died in our sins and we were raised to new life. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And listen to this. The life I now live in the flesh, the life that you and I live as a believer, if you put your trust in Jesus, we live by faith in the Son of God. This doesn't just mark the beginning of the Christian life. This marks the pattern of the Christian life, that we go from faith to faith. We continually grow in faith and express our faith, and that faith is worked out in obedience, and faith is worked out in worship, and faith is worked out in trusting God in the midst of our circumstances. So we have knowing the faith and living by the faith. These are foundational distinctions that are important for us to understand. I want you to, to know the faith. That's why we preach through God's word. But I want you to live by faith. That's why when we preach from God's word, we call you to respond, to respond in repentance, to respond in faith, to respond in worship, to respond in renewed obedience and renewed devotion and renewed adoration. Because we, we don't just have a, a faith that we mentally ascend to, but we have a Savior that we personally trust in. And at Christmas time, that message comes through clear in the Incarnation. I want us to see three things that the Incarnation teaches us. It teaches us about the faith. It teaches us about the essence of Christianity. And I, I, love, I love this uh, in, in part, and, and as well, this, this week as I thought about this and uh, and. One of the things I've kind of mentioned this before uh, to us as a church at, at Easter and at Christmas, on one hand, they're two of my favorite times of the year to preach. And yet, on the other hand, there's this sense of feeling like you, you can't ever preach a good enough sermon about Jesus's death and resurrection or about Jesus's birth. And uh, it's like you feel the need to preach your best sermon ever about these topics. And yet, uh, once you've preached a sermon on the incarnation, on one hand, there's uh, a world in which that we can swim around in. And yet you also feel like, well, I've said that before. 
I've already talked about how Jesus was born, and he was born to die, and he is our Savior, and he's the God-man, and I've already talked about how God has fulfilled his promises, and, and, and sometimes I can, I can get a little discouraged in my own soul thinking about these things, and I'm reminded, Paul said this uh, to the Philippians, he says, it, it does no harm for me to remind you of it, and it is good for you to be reminded of these truths. But I also this week was encouraged in, in reading actually the, the little book um, uh, called The Gift that's in your bag by Glenn Scrivener. I was reading a, a blog post by him about uh, Christmas and, and thinking about um, uh, how to reach others at Christmas. And, and he made this statement. He said, at Christmas time, we return to the, to the basic truths of our faith. We will return to these basic elements that we, we believe that God was was born miraculously into this world through a virgin named Mary. And he came, and he came not just to be a good moral teacher or to be a good example of how to love others, though he did all of those things. He, he came to be our Savior, to, to deliver us from our sins and to uh, free us from the bondage of, uh, of sin and, and death and Satan. And, and he not only came and, and was with us, but he died for us. And then he rose from the dead and he's gone to be at the Father's right hand and he's coming again and he's left us the Spirit. And, and, and when you stop and think about it, you're like, man, that's, that's the whole message of the gospel, the whole heart of our faith. Right here at Christmas, we're reminded of it. And so I just want to remind you of these three basic truths that the incarnation teaches us from Matthew 1 and, and chapter 2. I want us, to, want us to see first that God came to be with us. The, incarn the incarnation teaches us that God came to be with us. We, we heard it read about how the birth of Christ came about. And here in Matthew, we're told this from the perspective of Joseph, whereas in the Gospel of Luke, we see it more from the perspective of Mary as the angel told Joseph and Mary separately. And here Joseph gets word uh, of what's, to hap what's going to happen, how the woman that he's betrothed to, engaged to, prepared to be married to, is now suddenly with child. And being an honorable man, he is intending to to divorce and separate from her quietly. But the Lord intervenes and says to him, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then he says, all of this took place, Matthew tells us, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It says, see, the virgin will become pregnant and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. All of this has come about in the most unexpected and surprising way. And, and Joseph is confronted uh, with this message from the, from the angel. And in this message, he, he is told that God has come near to us, that God has come to be with us. His name is Emmanuel. This was the promise in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, in the prophet Isaiah, that, that though God's people were being driven away from God in exile, Think about the significance of this to the people of Israel when, I, when Isaiah spoke these words. They're, as a result of, of their sin, they're being driven away uh, from the promised land, from the very place where God promised to be with them. But he's saying, I'm, I'm going to come, and I'm going to come and be with you. God with us, Emmanuel. This is spoken perhaps most eloquently and memorably in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, 
It doesn't so much begin with the birth of Jesus, but it begins with the beginning of all things. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. You see, it refers to Jesus as the Word, the very um, agent of creation and, and how God worked out uh, creation that we see back in Genesis 1. And we see that, that creation was a, was a work of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and, and Jesus, when He is born, He is not coming onto the scene for the first time. He takes on a human body, but He has existed for all time. And it says in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, the God who created all things and made all things, the Word... And verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory, the glory of the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God himself came to dwell with us. The word for dwell with us is tabernacle. Uh, is where we get the word tabernacle um, in the Greek. And, and you think back to God's presence and the promise of his presence from the beginning. He told his people Israel that I will be with you. And God's presence was, was uh, limited to a location or particularly expressed in a location in the Old Testament. First in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And what, what, what people got so fired up about Jesus when he showed up is he said, you see the temple, you can tear it down and in three days I'm going to rise it up again. And he wasn't talking about the building, he was talking about his body because Jesus is saying that the presence of God has come. In the, in the coming of Jesus, God has come to dwell with his people. That's a profound thought. That in the birth of a baby, God is coming to dwell with us. And it takes us to the most uh, foundational truth regarding who God is. It tells us that, uh, that, that we have a God who is one and three, or trinity. And that before anything existed in the world, there was an unbreakable life of love and unity. And the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here we see that the second person of the Godhead, the Son, is now coming to take on flesh and dwell among us according to the plan of God the Father. And, and we know that all of this has come about through the Holy Spirit because what Mary has conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. All of this is a work of God, a work of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I love what H.B. Charles said. He said, Jesus is his name. Emmanuel is his title. Jesus is his, miss his mission. Emmanuel is his nature. Jesus is what he does, that he will save us from our sin. Emmanuel is who he is, that he is God with us. Jesus is the transcendent one, God. And Jesus is the imminent one with us. Jesus of Nazareth is God with us. The birth of Christ so so familiar and so common that we see it portrayed in, in movies and uh, animated shows for kids and at Christmas time and we got as a gift from my in-laws a nativity uh, uh, kind of outline that we put a light on in our yard and as I pull into my yard I there I see the nativity the scene is set and that familiar scene reminds us that at one point in history as Paul says in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God came to dwell with us. There was a moment in time when God walked among us. There was a moment in time where God could be seen and touched. That's the beauty of the incarnation. 
as God came to be with us. And it tells us that this God who is three in one, who existed before anything ever existed and, and, and who holds all things together, that, that this God is not a distant God. This God didn't create and kick the world into motion and step back uninterested in the creation. This isn't a God who's unconcerned and unmoved by the people that He created. But this is a God who draws near. This is a God who moved to our block and put on our clothes. This is a God who dwelt among us. This is God with us. Packer, in reflecting on the incarnation of the Trinity, he said, These things belong together, Trinity and incarnation. The doctrine of the Trinity declares that the man Jesus is truly divine. And the incarnation declares that the divine Jesus is truly human. Together they proclaim the full reality of the Savior that the New Testament sets forth. The Son who came from the Father's side at the Father's will to become the sinner's substitute on the cross. You see, the, the miracle of God with us takes us to the second foundational truth of the incarnation, and that's that God came to save us from our sin. Oh, it's amazing that God came to be with us. But I, I don't want us to miss the purpose of why He came to be with us. He came to be with us to save us from our sin. You see, Jesus was truly born to die. That was the purpose for His coming. You could say that the shadow of the cross fell on the cradle in Bethlehem. It was the plan from the beginning for God to, to come and be with us to, to be like us in every way, yet without sin, so that he could take the punishment for our sin and then instead give us the life that we could never have apart from him. God came to be with us, but he came to save us from our sin. Paul, telling us in the incarnation what took place, uh, kind of unpacks the significance of it in Philippians chapter 2. A passage that in some ways doesn't, you don't think of as a, as a Christmas passage, but perhaps is, is one, of the, one of the most beautiful Christmas passages of all. It says in Philippians chapter 2, as it reflects on the humility of Christ, um, <clears throat> it says that he who existed in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. This is the incarnation. And when he had come as a man, not only was he humbled in leaving the throne room of heaven to, to taking on human flesh, but he was humbled even further because he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, in the incarnation, Jesus did not lay aside his divinity, but instead he took upon himself humanity. He was fully God and fully man. And, and in coming uh, to dwell among us, it says he did so. He assumed the form of a servant so that he might be humbled and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's why we can't celebrate uh, the incarnation without also thinking of the crucifixion. That these two things go hand in hand. That Jesus was born to die. The reality is, uh, we see, starting back in Genesis 3, that sin brings death. It brings death in our relationship to God. Separation between man and God. It, it brings separation between people. It brings separation even in our inner th feelings and thoughts. And this spiritual death and the physical death that it brings, we are unable to overcome on our own. 
And because sin brings death, everyone must pay that price. But what God chose to do in the fullness of time is to send his son, Jesus, to forgive us of our sins so that we might have life. And he forgave us of our sins by becoming like us so that he could take the punishment, the penalty for our sin, becoming a substitute for us. That's the beauty of what we celebrate at Christmas. Tim Keller is famous for saying, we are so sinful that God himself had to come to deliver us. And we are so loved that God himself came to deliver us. Do you think about that? God didn't orchestrate some plan uninvolved of himself to deliver us from our sin. God himself came to be with us to deliver us from our sin, that we might be forgiven. What a, what a painful truth and reality that we must face, that our sin required the incarnation and the crucifixion for us to be made right with God. And what amazing love that God was willing to come to be born as a baby in Bethlehem according to the promise so that he might be the suffering servant on the cross by whose stripes we are healed and through whom we have forgiveness of sins. God came to be with us. God came to deliver us from our sins. But we also see that God came to rule over us. In Matthew chapter 2, as it moves on uh, from telling us of uh, the, uh, how the birth of Christ came to be, we're told that after the birth of Christ um, <clears throat> unfolded, after Jesus was born, chapter 2, verse 1, in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east, most likely from the Persian area, arrived in Jerusalem. And they came and most likely they found Herod because he was in charge. And they say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes and he asked them, where's Christ to be born? Where's the Messiah going to be born? And without missing a beat, they said in Bethlehem of Judea. And they said this was written by the prophet Micah. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd to my people. Herod sent the wise men away and said, hey, go find him and come back and tell me where he's at so I can come and worship him. But that wasn't really the plan. Uh, after all, they went and they indeed found him. And it says, when they saw the star, verse 10, they were overwhelmed with joy. And they entered the house and they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell on their knees and they worshiped him. And they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned throughout their country to another route. We see that here in, a, in an indirect way, but in a, in a foundational way, according to the promise of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, that the birth of Jesus, yes, it was the birth of a baby, but it was also the birth of the king. Because Jesus came to rule over us. And Matthew is presenting two astounding truths, if you really think about it. Jesus came to die for our sins, and Jesus came to rule as king. They almost seem contradictory. One is characterized by weakness. One is characterized by power. One is characterized by, uh, uh, by, by being rejected and suffering. One is characterized by being exalted and reigning. How could it be that the one who came to die for our sins is also the one who came to rule as king? And yet that's the, that's the beauty and the paradox of the gospel. That Christ rules and reigns 
Not first by conquering, but first by laying down his life for us and for our sins. And one day he will return and he will come to rule and reign fully and finally. But here to say that Jesus has come to rule over us and to to consider the, the way it unfolds with King Herod is this reminder we, we all kind of envision that, uh, that in some way we are in charge and, and we get to call the shots in our life. But here's the king of Judea, the one who has all the power in Judea. And he's confronted with this question. Where is the true king? Where is the true king? Who is it that really reigns? Who is it that really rules? And for, for us to understand the birth of Jesus, for us to understand the identity of Jesus, we must understand that Jesus is king, which is to say that Jesus calls the shots in our life. That was what was unsettling to Herod, so unsettling to him that he would kill all the children under two in the region, just so he wouldn't have to give up his rule and his reign and his, quote, title, king. We may not do that ourselves, but all of us are confronted with that question. Who is the true king? And are we submitted to him? And to understand the incarnation is to understand that, that yes, God came to be with us and he came to rescue us from our sin, but he came to rule over us. You see, the, uh, <clears throat> the newborn Jesus would, would, would flee to Egypt because just as God had warned the wise men in a dream not to go to Herod, he warned Joseph and Mary what was to unfold. And so they took Jesus and they fled to Egypt for a period until Herod, um, <clears throat> Herod had died. And then they would ultimately return and be back uh, in Nazareth. And here we see that the newborn king who has to flee to Egypt in Matthew 2, if you read along a little further... That, that newborn king will be the returning king in Revelation 22 who won't be fleeing but who will come reigning and conquering and establishing a new heavens and a new earth. That's the, that's the, the hope that we have as we remember the first coming of Christ. And in the unexpected way, God came to rule by laying down his life for us but we anticipate when he will come again in victory fully and finally establishing his rule and his reign. God came to be with us. God came to deliver us from our sins. And God came to rule over us. These simple truths from the incarnation are what we're reminded of at Christmas. And the question is, how do we respond? How do we respond? If that's the content of our faith, how do we respond personally? Now, I want to just briefly give you a few pictures to close out our time. I want you to consider Joseph and the wise men that we see in Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. I think a picture of courage and worship. I think of Joseph, who hearing the news of Mary's unexpected pregnancy by the Holy Spirit, the, the anticipation of the cost socially of what it would mean for him to be betrothed to a woman, uh, to be pregnant before they had, had been married, for, for him to consider uh, what it would be like to, uh, to, to trust God when this plan meant wrecking pretty much everything uh, that he would have expected. And here he is saying, God, I trust you. And it says it in the simplest way. After he's told these things in verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her. He took God at his word. 
He turned from himself, the very essence of faith, of denying self and trusting God, no matter the consequences. That's the picture that we have in Joseph of faith. Taking God at his word, turning from ourself, and trusting God with the consequences. And then we see the wise men. The, the wise men we don't know a ton about. We don't know uh, much, but we do know most likely, as I mentioned earlier, that they're from the, uh, the Persian area and perhaps had heard about the Messiah and had access to the Old Testament scriptures, most likely through the, the ministry of the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament and the, the, the lingering influence of Daniel at that time. And had heard about uh, this king to be born who was going to be king over the whole world. And so they came and, and this star that they had followed was leading the way. And they, they, they perhaps were coming from a background in which, no doubt, at that time, they were marked by all kinds of worship of many gods, of polytheism. And, and here in the midst of it, we don't know fully what they, they thought of this one true God who was to be king over all, but they came seeking. They came, they came searching for him. And they, and they found out where they were, they were, where they were to be headed. They, they went there, and when they got there and they saw Jesus... They did what faith leads us to do. They worshiped. We see that their faith was filled with joy when they saw the star uh, over the place where Jesus was. And they came in and their worship was sacrificial as they gave gifts to Jesus. And then we see their, their worship was marked by obedience as they trusted God's word and returned home without going to Herod. But it's, it's really a picture of how faith is to lead to worship. In, in many ways, worship is the, the proper response and outworking expression of our faith. Sometimes it's like, how, how do I, God, I don't know how to believe you or trust you right now. It's in those moments that the, the most proper and fitting uh, expression of our faith sometimes is just to worship, to say, God, I worship you. Sometimes our worship, I say this often uh, before our, uh, in our pastoral prayer, sometimes when we worship, it's the, it's the delight and overflow of our hearts, but sometimes it's a confession that, Lord, what I'm singing, I need you to help my heart catch up with. But worship is indeed the proper uh, expression of our faith, and we see that in the wise men. And the, the courage and the worship of, the, of Joseph and the wise men is contrasted by the fear and indifference of Herod and the scribes. You see, in Herod, we have uh, this, uh, this desire or, or this, uh, this hunger to be in control and to call the shots. Herod said, what king? I'm the king. Anyone who challenges my authority, I will do away with. And, and if we're honest, we all have a, a little bit of that in us. We all have a little bit uh, of, of wanting to be the captain of our own soul, right? We, we all want to be the ones calling the shots. And, and, and at least in some ways, we feel like we're the ones who are kind of the sovereign king over our lives. And one of the hard things in trusting God is, is, not, is believing that he's not a killjoy and that he's not taking something or keeping something from us, but that we would submit to him no matter what it costs. Keller, and reflecting on Herod, he says, we don't want to serve God or our neighbor. We want them to serve us. In every heart, there's a little King Herod that wants to rule and that's threatened by anything that may compromise our omnipotence and sovereignty. Each of us wants to be the captain of our soul and the master of our own fate. 
not necessarily the most pleasant thing to think about, the little Herod in all of our hearts. But that's the truth about sin, that we're unwilling to let God be in charge. And instead, we, we fear of what it will mean if God's in charge and what we will lose out on. Do you respond to God by fear, unwillingness to let go? Or do you respond by faith? But perhaps in my mind, the most um, subtle and yet dangerous response is the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, when the wise men came to Herod, they asked Herod, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Herod was like, I don't know. Let me call in the, the guys who know their Bibles. So they call in the scribes and the chief priests, the, the religious leaders of the day. And he says, where's the king to be born? And without missing a beat, they said Bethlehem. Oh yeah, we know Micah 5.2. The king's coming from Bethlehem. And, and, and after all of that, Herod says, you know, go examine this for us. He sends the wise men to do the work. And they went out and, and the scribes and the religious leaders stayed back while the wise men seeking from the east go and search carefully for the child who is born king. And they said, then you come back and tell us if you found him. I can't help but see the indifference, the familiarity that remains unmoved by the truth of what they know. I think that's perhaps the most pressing problem for American Christianity. Not that we lack knowledge, but that we remain unmoved by the knowledge that we know. Not that we, not that we have a lack of information, but that the information we know about God, that's been revealed about God, we can respond to with a yawn and with such indifference. They knew the king was going to be born in Bethlehem. And here they had before them wise men from the east who had literally traveled afar at great cost to come and find this one who was born king as promised in the scriptures. And they said, go see what you find and come tell us. What indifference. What indifference that comes in the midst of so much familiarity. To know so much about God and yet to be moved so little by God. To have great knowledge of God and yet to have little obedience to God. To know, but not to worship. That's dangerous. And perhaps at Christmas, one of the greatest encouragements for all of us is as we consider the familiar, is to pray that God would help us not to be indifferent with the familiar but that we would be moved by it and we would respond to it in faith. And then finally, as Victor and Rebecca come, I just want to flip over to Luke chapter 2. Or excuse me, Luke chapter 1, verse 34. And Luke shows us the perspective of Mary. And I love the perspective that we see as we consider Mary as she hears this news. Just as Joseph, I can only imagine how unnerving and unsettling it was. It says in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, that Mary, <clears throat> that the, the angel Gabriel appears uh, to Mary and uh, he says uh, to her, don't be afraid, Mary. This is verse 30. Uh, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary, hearing this, said, how can this be? I have not known a man. And the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And, and just consider Elizabeth, your relative. She's conceived a son in her old age and in the sixth month, um, and this is the sixth month for her who is called childless. Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. You see, as we think about the incarnation and the heart of the Christian faith, uh, I don't want you to think that, that God's word calls us to a naive uh, believism. Uh, just a, a simple, simpleton faith, you know, of checking your brain at the door and taking a blind leap into the dark. It doesn't do that at all. Um, and, and again, to, to, to quote uh, Tim Keller, he says in his book, Hidden Christmas, uh, encouraging uh, kind of devotional that if you haven't picked up one this year, it would be worth doing. He says, doubt in and of itself isn't a problem. Every, every person uh, questions, would question like Mary how this could be. But Keller said, there is a kind of doubt that is a sign of a closed mind. And there is a kind of doubt that is a sign of an open mind. Some doubt seeks answers. Other doubt, he says, is a defense against the possibility of an answer. I don't know fully where all of you are in responding to Jesus. Maybe like Mary, you're like, I don't know how all this could be, Lord. I'm not sure what to believe or what to think about all of this. Here Mary is, is, is questioning and asking God for an understanding of what's to happen. Not because she doesn't want to believe, but because she's seeking to believe. Whereas we see the question of Herod is not a question of wanting to know where Jesus is so that he can go and worship. But it's actually a defense against having to believe at all. It's not open at all to an answer. And here Mary's faith is marked by humility and submission. Humility that says, Lord, I don't fully understand, but I trust. Help me understand. And I love how gracious God is to Mary. When Mary says, how could this be? How could I have a child and not know a man? And, and the Lord, through the angel Gabriel, says, go visit Elizabeth. You know Elizabeth, it tells us earlier in Luke chapter 1, she was childless, the barren one who couldn't have a child. And she was late in her age, and, and there was no expectation that she would have a child. Go visit her. She's now in her sixth month of her pregnancy. What's impossible with man is possible with God. And to this, Mary said, your way, not my way. In faith, we say, God, your way, not my way. Not a simple, easy believism that's naive, that's just a blind leap in the dark. But a faith that's grounded in what God has revealed. A faith that takes God at his word. A faith that turns from ourself and a faith that humbly submits to him. That's how we respond at Christmas. That's how we respond to the simple truth that God came to be with us. He came to rescue us from our sin and he came to rule over us. As to say, God, I trust you personally, fully, wholeheartedly. Help me in my unbelief, but I trust you. Help me guard against the, the fear of, of letting go and letting you be in control and keep me from indifference, God. But let me believe. Let me trust you 
and live by faith. It's a simple message, but it'll change our life forever if we take him up by his word. Let's pray.